The Reign of King Charles II of England, Part 3. Now, when we left off, his friend Danby was in the process of making various policies. However, his policy was threatened from two sides. On the one hand, Charles kept negotiations with, Char- with Louis XIV. On the other, the country party in the Commons was being organized by Anthony Ashley Cooper, the Earl of Shaftesbury, who wanted closer control by Parliament over royal policy and the exclusion of the Catholic James from succession to the throne. Shaftesbury, the son of a Dorset country gentleman, was educated at Oxford and Lincoln's Inn and elected to Parliament at the age of 19. During the Civil War, he supported first the Crown, then Parliament, and trimmed his sails so carefully that he managed to be a member of Cromwell's Council of State, and yet was acceptable to the restored Charles II. For a time, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer and a member of the Cabal, but when news of the secret clause of the Treaty of Dover leaked out, he went over to the opposition. High ideals and personal ambition were mixed together in this ruthless, scheming nobleman. The poet John Dryden described him brilliantly, quote, For close designs and crooked counsels fit, sagacious, bold, and turbulent wit, restless, unfixed in principles and place, in power, unpleased, impatient of disgrace, in friendship false, implacable in hate, resolved to ruin or to rule the state. End of quote. Shaftesbury opportunity came in September of 1678. Two fanatical and fantastic characters called Israel Tong and Titus Oates revealed to the horrified royal council the details of a popish plot to kill the king and bring over foreign armies to impose Catholicism on England. Such a revelation brought to the surface all the fear and hatred of Roman Catholics that lay scarcely concealed in English life. Fear turned to panic when Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey, a magistrate to whom Oates had originally made his revelation, disappeared for five days and was then found murdered. Godfrey's murder was was widely accepted as proof of everything that Oates had said. And though this arch liar had invented most of the details of the plot, there was a kernel of truth in the fact that the king was a secret Catholic, pledged to convert his subjects with the aid of French troops. This was not generally known, but suspicion is a good breeding ground for rumor. Since nothing was certain, everything, however, unlikely was believed. As panic mounted, Shaftesbury accused Danby of secret negotiations with Prince and the Lord Treasurer had in fact written to Louis XIV at Charles' command, asking for money so that the king need not summon Parliament. It was against Danby's principles, but he was Charles's servant, not his master. Louis refused to pay. He distrusted Danby, whose Protestant foreign policy was a danger to France, and in the end he sent money not to the king, but to Shaftesbury. The Earl used it to win over more followers in the Commons, He also bought a following amongst the London mob and roused their tempers with propaganda put out from his headquarters, which was known as the Green Ribbon Club. To save Danby, Charles dissolved the Cavalier Parliament after it had sat for 16 years, but Shaftesbury followers were triumphant in the election which followed. When the new Parliament met in March of 1679, it was in an ugly mood as the Long Parliament had been in 1640. Danby was impeached and sent to the Tower, where he stayed in comparative safety and comfort until the crisis was over. Shaftesbury then introduced a bill to exclude James, the Duke of York, from the succession to the throne. 
The commons were divided and tempers ran high. Shaftesbury's followers, the country party, or Whigs as they came to be called, were in the majority, but their opponents, the court party, or Tories, kept their heads and refused to panic. The king was willing to limit James's power in advance, but he would not agree to cut him out of the succession altogether. To allow Parliament to appoint kings would have gone against everything the Stuarts stood for. Rather than accept such an ultimatum, Charles decided to do without money. I shall find means to pay the fleet, he said. It will be difficult and uncomfortable for me, but I will submit to anything rather than endure the House of Commons any longer. Before Parliament met again, the king fell seriously ill. Sympathy for him began to check the tide which was still running in Shaftesbury's favor, and although panic was at its height and innocent men were being condemned to death, fever pitch could not be kept up forever. A new Parliament eventually assembled in October 1680, and Shaftesbury again sprang to the attack with another bill to exclude James from the succession. Charles still refused to consider such a revolutionary proposal. He was prepared to fight rather than see the succession altered, and in this very fact told in his favor. The Civil War had been a savage business accomplished little. Few people were prepared to risk another. The Whigs could not count on the fiery Puritanism which had made their predecessor so dangerous in 1640. They were, in any case, divided. One group, led by Shaftesbury, wanted to make the king's illegitimate son, the Protestant Duke of Monmouth, heir to the throne. The other group thought the succession should pass to James's Protestant daughter, Mary, and her husband, William of Orange. The exclusion bill was passed to the Commons, but after a tense debate in the Lords, it was thrown out by 33 votes. Charles sensed that the tide was turning and dissolved the Parliament in January of 1681. He summoned another to meet in March at Oxford, the old royalist capital, away from the pressure of the London mob. When the Whig lords rode into Oxford with their armed retainers, they were confident of victory. But Charles had brought his lifeguards with him, the small regular army that he kept in the being after the Restoration, so that he would never be like his father, entirely at the mercy of the mob. In his opening speech, the king offered to agree to a regency in James's name after his death. When Shaftesbury rejected this and insisted that Monmouth should be named as the king's heir, Charles cut him short, quote, My lord, let there be no self-delusion. I will never yield, and I will not be intimidated. I have reason and law in my favor. Well-minded people are on my side, and there is the church which will remain united with me, end of quote. Shaftesbury felt sure Charles would, have give, would give way in the end because of his need for money. But the king had a trump card. Louis XIV had no wish to see Monmouth or William of Orange on the English throne and was ready to pay Charles a small pension if he could prevent this. While the Whigs were preparing to celebrate their victory, Charles suddenly dissolved Parliament. It was a masterly stroke, for it caught the Whig lords off balance. They had brought armed men with them to Oxford, but they knew that the country didn't want another war. Before they could collect their senses, Charles was out of their grasp on the road to London. Since they would not fight, they had no choice but to abandon the struggle and go home. Charles had indeed triumphed, and yet in the long run he failed. By forcing the English to accept his Catholic brother in the as the future king, he made sure that his family would eventually be swept from the throne. After the Oxford Parliament, Charles ruled alone until his death four years later. 
a royalist reaction set in, and the king was more popular than at any time since the Restoration. Shaftesbury fled to Holland, where he died in 1683. In that year also, two of his closest supporters, two of his closest supporters, Lord Russell and Algernon Sidney, were executed after the failure of their plan to assassinate Charles and James at Rye House near Hodsdon on their way back from Newmarket. In those closing years of his reign, the king strengthened his hold over England in a way that no steward had ever attempted before. All that was needed to control the countries was an appointment of Tories as magistrates in place of Whigs. The boroughs were a more difficult proposition. Many of them had been centers of opposition to the crown, and since they elected the majority of the members of parliament, they had great influence over central as well as local government. All boroughs, however, derived their special rights from the charters which the crown had originally issued them, though, the, though they added these rights by custom and tradition over the years. Many borough corporations were now summoned by the judges to show what authority they were exceeding their privileges in this way. If, as was usually the case, they could produce no authority, then their charters were confiscated. Even the capital city, London, had its charter taken away after a legal action in 1683. The charters were restored, but at a price, but only after they had been revised in such a way to give the crown the right to veto in the election of borough councillors. It seemed as though after years of struggling with Parliament and the towns from which it drew its main strength, the Stuarts had at last discovered a way to control it. Charles spent the last years quietly riding to Newmarket to watch the races there, of which he was extremely fond, or, or walking in the lovely park he created between the two palaces of Whitehall and St. James. He had made London a much gayer place to live in, and led the reaction against the somber seriousness of Cromwell's day. No sooner had the king been restored then the theaters reopened, and poets and playwrights and musicians came into their own. Dryden was foremost among the poets and was also a popular dramatist. He and Weckerly were the, set the fashion of highly polished comedies of manners, which was to find its supreme exponent after Charles's death and William Congreve. And music, the great figure of Henry Purcell, 1659-95, who joined the choir of the Royal Chapel in 1669. He could not have done so had he been born a few years earlier, for under the Commonwealth Church music was frowned upon as papist and ungodly. It came back with the king, and Pepys records in his diary in 1660, quote, to Whitehall Chapel, where I heard a very good music, the first time that I ever remember having heard the organs and singing men in surplices in my life, end of quote. Purcell, in his brief life, enriched the Anglican Church with music of a quality that had not been heard since the days of Byrd and Tallis. Indeed, late Stuart England was another Elizabethan period for the arts. In a lighter vein, perhaps, and under the influence of French fashions, but bubbling over with a sparkling vivacity, the king himself led the way, appointing Dryden as the poet laureate, paying frequent visits to the theater, sending his young composers over to study in France, he had no great love for the arts, but he knew how they could be used to add luster to the throne. He enjoyed them because they brought him into close touch with some of the wittiest men and women of his day. Beautiful women and witty men had a privileged position at his court and were permitted liberties denied to those who had no talent to recommend them. When the poet Earl of Rochester wrote his famous mock epitaph of Charles, quote, Here lies a great and mighty king, whose promises none relies on. He never said a foolish thing, 
nor ever did a wise one, end of quote. The king dismissed it with a laugh. Quite right, he said, quite right. For my words are my own, but my actions are my ministers. In February of 1585 came the sudden illness which led to Charles's death. Though his life was drawing to an end, he refused to accept the sacraments of the Church of England. But James sent for Father Huddleston, a Roman Catholic priest who had looked after Charles in his flight from Worcester, and Huddleston received the king into the Roman Catholic Church. Charles lingered for some time after that, agonizing with typical humor for taking such an unconscionable time about dying. But when the morning of this February the 16th came, James was now the king of England. And so next time we'll pick up with the beginning of the reign of James, and I will carry this over until we bring William and Mary over to England. And at that point, all of the material from the beginning of the English Civil War to the Restoration, I will have completed. So I hope you enjoyed that. Now the sources for this, The History of England by Thornton Lockyer and Smith, and then I have several biographies on both Charles II and coming James as well. So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, don't forget to come by the website sumahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise. And if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.